Thank you for tuning into this webinar, How to Prepare for Year-End in 2023 Payroll Compliance. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and HR professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speakers are Cindy McSwain and Pamela Nelson. Cindy leads AGH's Outsourcing Services Group, and her team provides payroll, accounting, funds disbursement, controller, and other financial outsourcing services to numerous clients throughout the central U.S. Prior to directing the outsourcing group, Cindy served AGH's assurance clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. Cindy's a certified public accountant and a member of both the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Kansas Society of Certified Public Accountants. Pamela Nelson also works in the Outsourcing Services Group at AGH. She's experienced in payroll processing, time and labor management, payroll tax compliance, and provides outsourced human resource functions. She's also specialized in human capital management system implementation and configuration, which includes online benefits enrollment, onboarding, and time and labor management. She has more than 20 years of experience in processing multi-state, multi-company payrolls, along with over 15 years of human resources experience. And she's also a member of the American Payroll Association. Ever-changing legislation and regulations continue to complicate payroll compliance. Cindy and Pamela will drill down into the specifics of what you must identify, calculate, analyze, and report by January 2023 to avoid the potential fines and penalties for non-compliance. Well, thank you everybody for joining us again today. Um, I'm really excited to have Pamela joining me again this year for this uh, year-end payroll webinar. So welcome, Pamela. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's hard to believe, um, gosh, time is flying. Um, we're already past Thanksgiving and we're closing out on another year end. And I'll, I'll be the first one to say I am nowhere near ready for Christmas, but we're, we're going to get there anyway. Um, once again, this year, AGH has, uh, we've done our lineup of three different webinars dealing with year end preparation. And today is the final one in that series. And we're going to cover year end payroll. We've already covered the 1099 reporting and fringe benefits. Uh, if you missed those, uh, they are actually archived out there on our AGH University website um, so that you have access to them. Uh, and for those involved in the payroll processing, uh, year-end just brings a lot of extra stuff. Uh, not only are we trying to wrap up and finalize everything for 2022, uh, but then we're also trying to get ready for the new year, kind of all at the same time. You know, in some cases, uh, for those of you who might have weekly payrolls, uh, there's only a week in between there to make the full transition from one one year into the next. And all of this comes, you know, amidst the holiday season when most people are actually trying to take some time off uh, to enjoy the the season. Um, but we're we're gonna go anyway. Uh, for some reason, I'm not wanting to advance here. Okay, so. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. So, you know, we're going to spend the first portion on preparing for our payroll year end. Uh, that's going to include some best practices for gathering all the different forms of compensation, performing reconciliations, as well as a reminder of some of those critical dates and filing deadlines. Uh, the second portion, then, we're going to dedicate that to looking at what changes are coming up for the new year. And that's going to include looking at some of those updated limits and rates and things that we should keep in mind for 2023. Um, so if you joined us for the Fringe Benefit webinar that we did a couple weeks ago, I'm going to warn you up front, we're going to cover um, some portions of the topics that we discussed there, but only at a, a very high level. 
some of our audience is new or different today, so we always think it's a good idea to, to do a little bit of a refresher on some of the basics. Okay, so let's start by taking a look at what really what we should have already accomplished, and if not, we probably need to kick it in gear and, and get it done here. Um, we only have a couple weeks left. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we want to make sure that we've ordered our forms that are needed for the year. That's going to include your W-2s, your W-3s, your 1099s, and the various state forms that go along with that. Um, you might also, if you're required, you might also be ordering your ACA forms. And, you know, I always think it's a good idea to do some test printing on those so that there's no surprises come January. That's right. And Cindy, you know what, folks should also remember to service any equipment that is needed, such as your stuffer or pressure sealer machines. Make sure that those rubber rollers are up <laughs> to snuff and ready to go. Fire drills are never a fun thing, right? Yes. So, um, we also want to make sure that we're identifying those processing dates for the last payroll or payrolls of 2022. Uh, that's going to include any of the bonus runs, any adjusting payrolls, such as adding in fringe benefits that you might not have already included throughout the year. Also, think about the, the holiday schedule. Christmas Day and New Year's Day this year fall on Sundays, uh, and that means the 31st, the last day of the year, falls on a Saturday. Uh, the Federal Reserve holidays are going to be on Mondays for both Christmas and for the new year. Uh, so make sure that you have all the members on your team on the same page when it comes to scheduling. I know a lot of people are looking at time off, but, right. but we still have those critical deadlines to meet in the meantime. Uh, it's also important to include all forms of employee compensation before year end. Now, most payments are made through our payroll systems. Uh, but we really still need to go look in other areas and play detective or sleuth and find anything else that might be lurking outside of that payroll system. That's going to mean checking with your accounts payable folk, um, maybe with your HR to see if there's any new plans or anything like that, that that we really just need to be aware of. Because we all know in all organizations, you know, um, communication is probably not always at its best. It's just that's realistic. Um, so it's good to ask questions. Um, make sure then that you obtain information on any payments that are made through employees to employees through AP. They, they might not have to be included on W-2s, but you still want to be aware of them. Uh, then we've got those fringe benefits and other compensable items that we have to think about. And here shortly, we're going to do a brief overview of some of the more common types of fringe benefits and a little uh, overview of you know what's really included in compensation. Uh, it, it, Make sure that we don't neglect system updates um, to our software. Make sure all those updates have been installed and then actually test those. Um, you know, again, the world's a better place when we're prepared and there aren't nasty little surprises. And so it's important to make sure that things are working how we think they are supposed to work and not just assuming that everything's correct. You know, what else should we be doing right now to prepare for your end? You know, even though it's it's maybe not your responsibility, it depends, you know, on the organization that you're in, but it's important to make sure that those payroll bank accounts are reconciled through um, at least November. It's another area where necessary adjustments can actually be uncovered. And, and you would all be surprised how many times we walk into organizations and, and you know, realize that bank accounts haven't been reconciled uh, for maybe the last three months, um, sometimes for the last year, and heaven forbids we've seen it longer than that as well. Um, for example, you want to make sure that there's no odd-looking outstanding payroll tax payments. And if there are, you're going to want to ask, you know, is that an error that needs to be fixed in the system, or is that something truly that 
um, you thought you sent it and it never cleared. So there, you know, there's an error on the rem, um, remitting side. We're going to talk a little bit about wage reconciliations because that's another area that we see many organizations overlook. So if you're processing your own payroll internally and that we saw that, you know, the majority of the audience today is doing that, uh, this is something that you really should be doing each and every quarter. Uh, and those for you who are outsourcing your payroll, this was the, you know, the second largest group in our audience. Right. You should probably do this at least once a year or request that reconciliation from your outsourced service provider. This is really to make sure that your system is set up proper, properly. You know, after all, even if you're outsourcing, it's it's you as the employer, you are the one that's ultimately responsible for the accuracy of your payroll. And, you know, we see a lot of those outsourced service providers um, that expect you to know the taxability and, and things like that of those codes. They're not setting, you know, they're providing the software and they're actually doing the processing, but they're not the ones who are determining um, how, how some of those items should be, um, how they should be taxed. So we're going to talk about how we do this, but it's really just a logical tie out of, of each of the different earnings buckets is what I call them, or the earnings types. That's going to mean, you know, manually calculating the overall taxable wages to make sure that system is doing what you think it should do. And then additionally, we look at the totals for the system and tie those back to the actual compliance reports filed. So the 941s or the W3s. Sometimes, um, oftentimes actually, adjustments get posted to the payroll system and outside of the normal process. You know, maybe we've made an adjustment or maybe we've done, you know, back pay or we've reversed something. Um, and sometimes those get backdated into a previous quarter. And you don't, you know, so, so then, and we didn't amend a 941 or something like that. You don't wanna receive a notice from the IRS or the Department of Labor a year down the road, notifying you that, you know, the W-2s don't tie to, all your quarterly reports. It's also a good idea to reconcile state totals back to your federal totals, just to make sure you know we're picking everything up. Um, the state unemployment information should be pulled from the returns that were actually filed uh, so that you can see that what's in your system is what was actually filed. And again, we didn't get into the system and make some adjustment. And it may have been a totally valid adjustment, but um, we just forgot to do the, the rest of the steps. Um, we also recommend doing a similar reconciliation with tax payments, and if possible, again, you need to be using the information regarding the actual payments from those agency websites. Uh, we want to research and document our deadlines and make sure that you're doing some of that research now because, man, January just gets hairy. Uh, make sure you know the filing deadlines. Keep a watch out for IRS announcements of any changes. Um, typically not a lot comes out around this time of the year other than things related to disaster and extensions and things like that, but, you know, they might and they post it on their website. Uh, I also recommend that, I, I'm a checklist person, but I recommend making a checklist instead of just trying to remember all the various dates um, and, and make sure that you're able to work through that. You know, the other thing is, it, for all of us, it's been an entire year since you know we've gone through this process. So I always think it's a good idea to go back and take a refresher course on what happened last year. That means, you know, let's go back and look at last year's file to see what adjustments were necessary or what we did. What what are those fringe benefits that we picked up and we considered, um, and any other issues that you might have run into. So in the second part of this webinar today, we're going to also discuss the things we need to consider before processing that first payroll in the new year. Um, you know, and, and attending today's webinar, I kind of looked through the list and a lot of people 
Um, I've seen this, these names year over year over year, but kudos to you because um, it's important to, you know, at least get a little bit of a refresher going on. All right, so we're going to go ahead and spend some time talking about compensation. So uh, we spent some time in a previous webinar talking about the IRS and the Treasury's definition of compensation. So we're not going to go all the way back through that here, but here's a quick refresher of a compensation breakdown. So compensation includes all income unless it is specifically excluded by law. So this is going to include money, property, services, where the employee benefits due to the employee-employer relationship. And the income isn't just a payment. So the income may be realized in the form of services, meals, stock, cash, or other property. Keep in mind a benefit provided on behalf of an employee is taxable to an employee even if the benefit is received by someone other than the employee, such as a spouse or a child. So it's potentially the employee discount that you provide on the goods and services you provide customers. If the discount's too high, a portion may be taxable. It's the $25 gift card you give an employee for a pat on the back. It's the value of the spouse's travel expenses when the employee took them on a business conference and the employer footed the bill. And then let's not forget, it can also include non-profitable vested interest and deferred compensation plans. So these are all fringe benefits. There are quite a few items that can be provided to employees that we have to identify and possibly value. Now, this slide here lists a number of them. Remember, many qualified payments to your employees that are substantiated can be excluded. So due to the number of the complexity of fringe benefits, we dedicated an entire hour webinar to the topic just two weeks ago. Mike yeah. and Cindy did that. So I always like to remind organizations uh, when, when we talk about fringe benefits about determining your level of risk, risk acceptance woo, when it comes to reporting fringe benefits. So we talk a lot about even, you know, cash or those $25 gift cards, the pat on the back types right. of things, technically, they're technically considered taxable compensation. However, more, you know, I, I, in all honesty, many organizations choose to take the risk of not treating that way. But, you know, so we're here to tell you what the technical answers are. Right. Uh, and then you as an organization have to decide, you know, what risk am I willing to take on? Mm -hmm. So we always like to give out resources, too, for where to find answers to any of your questions. So all three of these here can be found on the IRS's website, and they're good resources for learning more about fringe benefits. So if you decide that you will pay the employee portion of taxes on any of the fringe benefits, remember that the payment of those taxes is also going to be classified as wages. So you're going to need to gross up the earnings using this formula here. You should consider not only the FICA and the Medicare, but federal income tax, state withholding tax, and any applicable local tax agencies also. And be sure to look at your year-to-date amounts when you're doing this for your employees. So employees that have hit the FICA threshold will not need to be grossed up for that tax. Additionally, watch for employees that have exceeded that 200,000 additional Medicare wage threshold. You'll need to include the additional 0.9% in the gross up for them. And also keep in mind that employees that have exceeded 1 million in compensation will be required to use a federal withholding rate of 37%. Now, we're happy to share this spreadsheet version of the gross-up calculation with you. If you'd like for us to send it to you, just make a request in the question box there. 
All right, so let's move into some helpful reminders uh, for, for reporting. Other items that need to be considered and possibly entered uh, prior to the end of the year are going to include the reporting of employer-provided health insurance. Uh, that's still going to be reported in box 12. That uh, includes a code of DD. This continues to be informational-only informational data, and it includes the total cost of the employer-provided coverage. So. Um, that means it's going to be both the employee and the employer portion is going to be included in there. Uh, employers who filed less than 250 W-2s in the prior year are still not subject to this reporting requirement. Uh, so this relief, it, it's been in place for a long time, but mm -hmm. it remains in effect basically until the IRS says otherwise. So um, more than 250 employee or 250 or more employees reported in the prior year, you have to include that. Uh, deferred compensation. If you have employees with non-qualified deferred comp plans under Section 409A, you'll need to determine if there was a change to any vesting of that benefit, as well as um, look at any contributions to the plan to determine the taxability. Uh, the other item is uh, third-party sick. Uh, make sure that you record any third-party sick that's applicable. Uh, there's different arrangements with third-party providers, so make sure that you understand the responsibilities of your specific arrangement. Keep in mind that if the payments are made after an employee's death or the payments are attributable to employee contributions made with after-tax dollars, uh, the payment amounts are not subject to income tax withholding. So let's talk a little more about third-party sick here. If your third party is not your agent, then that third party will be responsible for withholding and reporting FICA and Medicare and any federal tax withholding that the employee might request. Under this arrangement, the third party is going to notify you of the payments so that then you can record and pay the employer portion of the taxes. On the other side, if the third party is your agent or you're making the payments directly to the employee, you are the ones responsible for withholding the FICA and Medicare from the payments. Um, and then you're gonna use the employee's W-4 to calculate the federal income tax withholdings. So be sure to clarify with your, with your provider in that situation who's responsible for preparing those W-2s. If your provider prepares them, you're gonna to need to complete um, what's known as a third-party recap. Another piece of information uh, that you're gonna need is to identify any special codes that need to be also be populated in box 12 of the W-2. A couple of the more commonly used fringe benefit codes are uh, code C, that's the taxable cost of group term life insurance that exceeds uh, $50,000. Codes D and AA, that's for your 401k and your Roth contributions to retirement plans. And then there's also codes for third-party sick pay, deferred comp plans, and others. Um, so th this is a list of, this just comes straight out of the, the instructions for the Form W-2, but it's a list of all the codes that could possibly go in the box 12. Uh, there's, there's a pension checkbox on the W-2 that um, we often get questions about, and I think it's confusing. So you're going to check that box if the employee is a participant in a defined benefit plan. Now, that's going to be like a, def, uh, like a pension plan. It's also going to be checked if they're deferring in a retirement plan or if the employer has made contributions into, into the plan on the employee's behalf, even if that employee's not making their own deferrals. That's going to be something like a uh, profit-sharing contribution. Then we talk about ACA. We all love ACA, right? Yeah. Um, 
boy, I can't believe that that was, it was all the way back in 2015 uh, when that started for applicable large employers, also known as ALEs. Generally, this includes employers with more than 50 full-time equivalents. That's as defined in the regs. Uh, and this calculation includes both full-time and part-time employees. So to satisfy the employer mandate, the uh, reports are going to include information about whether health care coverage was offered, as well as if it was affordable. There's actually three series of forms that we always kind of like to recap because they can be confusing. Um, the A series, those are going to be prepared for individuals that have gone out and purchased their health insurance through the marketplace. Uh, the B series, those are typically prepared by health insurance providers for fully insured plans where the company has more than 50 full-time equivalents or by self-insured plans where the employer has even less than 50 full-time FTEs. Uh, these forms will provide the health insurance coverage information for both the employees and their de any dependents that are covered. And then finally, we have the C-series of forms, and those are prepared by employers, and that's going to include information about the type of coverage and affordability of the coverage offered, offered to the employers, to the employees, sorry. Um, and for self-insured plans that have more than the 50 FTEs, they're going to also complete the section on that form about the coverage information for employees and their dependents. Um, then the last thing that I've got listed down here, there's also a 1094, and that's actually the transmittal. So that's similar to your W-3 um, when you're talking about W-2s. Uh, these forms are going to be due to your employees by March 2nd, which is an automatic extension from the end of January. Um, they're due to the IRS by the end of February, unless you file electronically, and then they're um, due by the end of, the, end of March. All right, so now that we've gathered up all the employee compensation and we have it recorded, uh, what's gonna be our next steps? So um, kind of mentioned this a little earlier, we're gonna go dive a little deeper now. Um, we wanna manually calculate taxable wages to make sure again, that that payroll system is, is functioning as we think it should. And additionally, the time- Can I jump in real quick? Yeah. I think we had that polling question freeze up real quick, so we're gonna fix that. I'll walk oh, you through oh, it. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, give me one minute here. We've got the technology guru at work. All right, you should see a pop-up on your screen asking you to share your screen again. Yeah. Okay. Looks good on my end. Sorry about that. You guys should be good. Oh, Mike, we know you just wanted to interrupt us. <laughs> it's all great. We're, we're so happy to have him along. Okay, so um, let's see, we were talking about wage and tax reconciliations. Um, if you're processing your own payroll internally, which it looks like a majority of you are, uh, again, I recommend that you do that each and every quarter. And you should probably do this as well, even if you're outsourcing your payroll. Um, you don't necessarily have to do it quarterly, but you should probably look at it at least annually, just to make sure again that everything's functioning. So how do we do this? What do you mean by wage reconciliation? So I just want to show you kind of what we do here in our service bureau at AGH. Um, you know, one, we just use a simple spreadsheet and this is going to list all of your earnings, all your deductions, it's going to be on the next slide, um, and the taxability or the tax impact based on the different tax buckets that sit out there. 
Um, so each earnings code here in our spreadsheet, it's been designated for each tax bucket in those columns to the left of the highlighted year-end amounts column. Earnings, call, earnings codes that are going to be included in taxable wages, those are designated with a one, uh, while those that are excluded are designated with a zero. The columns to the right then um, are actually just formula driven and they're gonna drop in or exclude uh, our different wages based on, based on those designations that we have. So let's look at this example. Um, we have fringe insurance, that's about the fourth one down. Um, it's includable in taxable wages for all buckets. So all those columns list a one and you can see that it populates all the way over there. So in this case, if we go about two thirds of the way down, we see reimbursed expenses. Now, if we have an accountable plan, reimbursed expenses aren't taxable, right? So we put zeros in there and you can see then over on the, on the right-hand side, those all populate over. This is, this is for those organizations who actually um, pay out their reimbursed expenses through the payroll system. Mm -hmm. um, I know many of you pay them out through the accounts payable system. So, you know, that wouldn't necessarily pertain, but we also have a, a number of people who do it uh, through their payroll system. So moving on to the next slide, this is, you know, that was the earnings. These are the deductions. And so that exact same logic applies. Um, so if we take another example here for um, on the 401k line, that has a negative one in the, um, federal and state income tax columns. And that's because these contributions actually reduce our taxable wages for those buckets. Um, so another trick that we kind of like to use, sorry, kind of rabbit holing here, but uh, when we set up payroll items, we try to use a, a standard naming scheme. So items that are deducted on a pre-tax basis out of those cafeteria plans or those section 125 plans, we actually put a throw a 125 at the, at the end of that naming code. Uh, we also list employer deductions with an ER as the last two digits. You know, for us, it just makes it a lot easier to, you know, visualize and, and make it pop out and stand out quickly uh, when we're trying to find those things. So moving on, once we've totaled all of the different buckets, then we also want to make sure that certain taxable wage buckets are the same uh, because that's the way they should be. Um, so in, in this example, we want to verify that our, our federal wages equal our state wages. And we've even gone one step further here by listing the taxable wages for each of the various states that we're in to make sure that they also add up to the total. Now, most employers can usually verify that their federal taxable wages plus 401k deductions are gonna equal FICA and Medicare wages. Uh, FICA wages should equal taxable wages for federal unemployment, unless you have group term life, and then we're gonna exclude that from federal unemployment. But keep in mind, um, states all have their own rules, right? And they don't necessarily always follow the federal rules for certain deductions. So there might be circumstances where you have to adjust this logic a little bit. An example there would be that Iowa and Texas both include pre-tax deductions when calculating um, their taxable wages for state unemployment purposes. You know, next we also recommend that we reconcile the data that's held inside of the payroll system to the actual returns that we filed. So compilation of this information after each quarterly, each quarter uh, really makes it a bit easier at year end. So, you know, here again, this is, this is the reconciliation forms that we use uh, at our office and our service bureau. Um, because we wanna make sure that the sum of the four parts add up to the reporting of the whole, right? Um, 
we want to verify that our some of the 941s match the W3s and W2s. Uh, any discrepancies are going to generate a notice from the Social Security Administration, and we'd like to avoid that. Nobody wants that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, again, this is this stuff's taken from the quarter returns. Upper section here is based on the 941s that were actually filed, not what we're pulling out of our system. And then you you'll want to compare that the totals to what's in the system. Um, again, we kind of discussed this earlier, but usually that if, if it doesn't tie, it's usually an indication that there was some adjustment made that um, maybe got backed up into a different quarter. And in that case, may need to file a 941X or an amended return. So you can also see on this spreadsheet, we're breaking out the different states for income tax and state unemployment. Uh, the state unemployment information should again be pulled from the actual returns that were filed so that um, you, know, you know what's in your system is actually what was filed with those agencies. Um, you know, we look at this stuff each quarter, but you, know, you could look at it at the end of the year just to make sure something didn't get slipped in. Finally, you'll see that we're comparing our total state wages to the total federal wages, as well as listing the total state withholding so that we can compare that to what's on our, uh, our W-3s. You know, we also I really recommend that we do a similar reconciliation with all of our tax payments. Um, and again, it's best if you can actually pull those numbers from the state agency's website so that you can, you know, that's what, it's not what we think was, you know, filed with them, it's what was actually filed with them. Again, any of these spreadsheets, you know, if you're interested in getting those, uh, we're happy to, um, to share those with you so you don't have to reinvent the wheel You can just pop that in the, in the question box as well. So at this point, let's shift into deadlines, penalties, and some common errors to avoid. So Pamela, can you talk about this year's deadlines? Absolutely, Cindy. All right, so let's just say that January 31st is the magical date for just about everything. All right, recall that in October of 2016, the PATH Act, or the Protecting Americans from Tax Hikes, was enacted and included changes to filing deadlines. So now just about everything is due by the end of January. So this year, January 31st lands on a Tuesday, and that's the due date. And this is going to include your 941s for the fourth quarter of 2020, as well as the annual federal unemployment return. Uh, companies must also distribute their W-2s to their employees no later than the end of January. Both paper filed W-2s and electronically filed W-2s are due to the Social Security Administration, by the end of January. And additionally, many of the 1099s are also due to both the recipient and filed with the appropriate agencies by the end of January. Now, for AACA, near the end of 2021, the IRS filed a notice of proposed rulemaking that provides an automated, automatic 30-day extension for the ACA forms. So like Cindy had mentioned earlier, the deadline for providing ACA forms to employees is now gonna be March 2nd. Paper forms are going to be due by the end of February to the IRS. And then if you're electronically filing, those are going to be due by March 31st. Yeah, so everybody is so excited to get through January, um, January 31st filing deadlines. We wake up on February 1 and go, oh, good, ACA. Yeah, we can do our ACA reporting. <laughs> All right, so just a reminder that the electronic reporting of W-2s is required for any employer with 250 or more W-2s. Uh, electronically filing is encouraged for others below that 250 threshold. 
Uh, these same requirements apply for 1099 filing. So make sure you look at the requirements for the various states that you file in, as many of them have different requirements from federal and many of their thresholds are much smaller. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna jump in here for just a second. Um, just as a reminder to everybody, and some of you may not even be aware of this, but there was um, the Taxpayer First Act of 2019 actually authorized the Treasury and the IRS to issue regulations that reduce this 250 return requirement for electronic filing. So at any time, you know, we might see something come out that, that reduces that, which is going to impact a lot of people. Right. Um, but at this point, no regulations have been issued. Haven't really heard a lot of chatter about it. Um, so that number still remains at 250, but it's something we need to know that's in the back of our head. Right. That's the intent is to automate even more. Right. Okay, so this is also a good time to remind you that the SSA updated their W-2 electronic wage file upload last year. So if you're filing your W-2s through the SSA Business Services online site, be aware of this. Uh, the new option is going to check your file for file type and format. The data inside is also going to be checked for errors. So if your file passes, it will be submitted for further processing and you'll get a successful confirmation page. And then one more thing that we probably need to point out here is let's also think about security in W-2s. So Cindy, we see year after year yeah. stories about employers providing W-2s in bulk via email, uh, responding to phishing scams where the request appears to be from a company executive. Any requests for W-2s that come via email should not be verified, should be verified prior to sending. So that verification should be picking up the phone, giving them a call, if you have to email them back, create a new email for verification. Don't just respond to the email that was received. So as an example here, the most common thing that we've kind of read stories or seen stories about is, is the owner of the company or the CEO or the president of the company. It looks like an email came from them and it right. looks like a legit email that goes to the payroll department and says, hey, can you please send me a copy of all the W-2s? Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you go in and you look at who that email is coming from, it's really, you know, the source of that email is not coming from who you think it's coming from. Right. And then, so that's mistake one. Mistake two is that we just take all of our emails. We don't, you know, secure them or we don't password protect them, send them securely or anything like that. We just, you know, attach them to this email mm -hmm. and off they go. And that means they've just gone off into the dark web. That's right. Yeah, for, don't for anybody. Don't so. do that. Make sure you pick up the phone and you call and you verify these did, requests. Did you really want these? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, let, let's move over to penalt filing penalties because you know we all love to get those notices. Um, there's actually three different penalties that can be assessed related to the filing um, and this filing of information returns. So this includes the 1099s as well. Um, the first two listed here involve the failure to furnish correct payee statements and the failure to file correct returns with the IRS. So, you know, when we when we get these done, we send one to the employee and one over to the IRS, um, but there's separate penalties for both of those. Um, the amount of those penalties are based on when you actually file the correct information return or when you furnish the correct payee statement. So they're kind of time-weighted. Time uh, the penalty for not filing a correct information return is actually separate, um, but they happen separate from the um, not filing it with the, the service or the agency, but they're the same amount. So um, if you don't file them at all, it's basically double what you're seeing here. 
Um, these same penalties also apply to, the, like I said, the 1099 series and also the ACA required um, forms that are out there as well. So uh, the biggest ones I see come through when we, when we get panic calls from um, folk out there are usually dealing with the ACA. Um, so if an applicable large employer and has 100 full-time employees and they make zero effort because maybe they didn't know about it, mm -hmm. uh, they make zero effort to comply with regs, uh, it, you're looking at an, an, a minimum $58,000 fine out of the gate. Um, a lot of times the ones we're seeing on these are, you know, companies that were acquired by somebody else or companies that um, went out of business, uh, but the IRS is still out there and they're still making them um, go get the information and get and get them filed. So those, those kind of get a lot of numbers behind them. Um, Social Security Administration encourages all employers to, like we said, electronically file. Uh, however, you're required to file electronically again if you're... Um, filing 250 or more. That's the same that goes for um, the 1099s as well. Uh, so there's also a penalty out there if you are required to file electronically, but you don't, you file in paper. So currently this penalty is up to $290 per form, um, but only for each form that's over the first 249. Um, you know, this is gonna be the same for the ACA forms as well. Cindy, how do we get out of these penalties? Um, you know, I don't get that question until somebody has a notice laying on their desk. But So the first one is reasonable cause. Uh, and you can show reasonable cause and not willful neglect uh, if you can show that your failure was due to an event that was beyond your control or due to significant mitigating factors. You also are going to have to show that you acted in a responsible manner and took steps to avoid the failure. So if you kind of ignored it, um, anybody on this webinar, I know you're not ignoring it, but um, there are some out there. Um, you, you're not going to be able to use this if you ignore it. Um, an inconsequential error or omission, that's not considered a failure to include correct information. So this is going to be an error that doesn't prevent or hinder the service or the IRS from processing the return or from correlating that information with the payee's income tax return. Now, errors and omissions that are never considered inconsequential are those that relate to a taxpayer ID number, a payee's surname, or any monetary amount. Um, there's also de minimis rules out there for corrections. That's going um, to have to make sure that you know, the information returns were filed timely and either failed to include all the information required or included incorrect information and everything was filed and the corrections were filed actually by August 1st. So if all three of these conditions are met, the penalty for incorrect returns will not apply to the greater of 10 returns or a half of 1% of the total number of information returns that you're required to file. So there's still gonna be some stuff out there, but th there's a little bit of, of leeway there. Additionally, uh, there's a safe harbor rule out there for de minimis dollar amount errors. Um, that's going to be uh, if the difference between the dollar amount reported and the correct amount is no more than $100 and the difference between the dollar amount reported for tax withholdings and the correct amount is no more than $25. Pretty low threshold, but it's still out there. Um, now, um, be careful because the safe harbor does not apply if your recipient elects or requests or calls you on the phone, asks, 
um, to receive a corrected statement. In that case, you have to comply and do a corrected return, and you're going to have to give that both to the payee and to the um, to the agency. All right, so let's talk about FUTA credit reduction states. So we haven't really seen this for a minute. It's right. kind of coming back around. So about 68 years ago, FUTA credit reduction was a pretty big item that we would discuss. Uh, this list used to be significant um, as a result of the recession in 2007 and 2008. For the past several years, this has been pretty minimal with only the U.S. Virgin Islands being the only state or territory remaining with a credit reduction. However, this list is starting to grow again post-COVID. So state unemployment benefit payouts in connection with COVID-19 have been substantial in the past several years, placing an unprecedented strain on the various state unemployment trust funds, as in the financial collapse of 2008-2009. So for 2022, the federal unemployment tax, or the FUDA rate, is 6%. This tax applies to the first $7,000 that you pay to each employee as wages during the year. The 7,000 is the federal wage base. Now your state wage base may be different and generally you can take a credit against your food tax for amounts you paid into state unemployment funds. The credit may be as much as 5.4% of food taxable wages. If you're entitled to the maximum 5.4% credit, the food tax rate after the state credit is 0.6%. So you're entitled to take that maximum credit if you paid your state unemployment taxes in full, if you paid them on time, and on all the same wages as are subject to the food tax. And as long as the state is not determined to be what is called a credit reduction state. So what is a credit reduction state? So this is a state that has not timely repaid money that it borrowed from the federal government to pay unemployment benefits. That is called a credit reduction state. The Department of Labor determines these states based on payments made by November 10th of each year. If an employer pays wages that are subject to the unemployment tax laws of a credit reduction state, that employer must pay additional federal unemployment tax when filing its Form 940. So as we look at it here, uh, this is going to be the listing of the credit reduction states for 2022. Now, while Kansas employers, you're still going to receive the full credit, credit reduction states for 2022 are going to include California, Connecticut, Illinois, New York, and we're still going to see the U.S. Virgin Islands on there. So employers in these states will have to pay an additional amount when filing their annual Form 940. So if you paid wages in credit reduction states, you must include liabilities owed for credit reduction with your fourth quarter federal unemployment tax deposit. You may deposit the anticipated extra liability throughout the year, but it's not actually due until the due date for the deposit for the fourth quarter since each state's loan status is not determined until November 10th of each year. So accordingly, the associated liabilities should be recorded as being incurred in the fourth quarter. So we also want to throw in some of the most common errors that we come across uh, related to your in payroll. Uh, basically, that includes not complying. Mostly, it involves not complying with state issues. Mm -hmm. So this is going to include state filing deadlines that might be different from the federal deadlines, uh, state electronic filing requirements that are different from federal requirements as well. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to say here that many companies are just not aware of all the compliance issues um, related to being in various states. You know, there's registrations, there's form reporting requirements, et cetera. 
you know, our workforces have really become more dispersed and um, able to use technology and work remotely. And especially here in the last couple of years with COVID. Um, you know, so if you have employees that are working in states outside of your primary business location, um, then you might as you might have issues that are that need to be addressed. Um, and it's really becoming a big issue with the states. Um, and there's even issues, you know, for some of those border states that, you know, if you're living in one state working in the others, you know, you, you really have to be able to understand where are they taxed for um, income tax, and that might be different where they're taxed for um, unemployment purposes. Other common errors include, um, you know, overlooking the fringe benefits and com other compensation, compen compensable whoo, items, you know, and we talked about that a little earlier. Uh, additionally, matching employee identification numbers is a common problem, and there's there's several you know mechanisms out there that we can use to uh, make sure that we're we're doing those correctly. Um, so now we're going to switch over to what we need to uh, consider in the next year. Yeah. So to give employers a needed temporary financial boost, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act allowed employees to defer payment of the employer's share of Social Security tax beginning March 27, 2020 through December 31st, 2020. So one half of the employer deferred Social Security tax was due by December 31st of 21, and the remainder is going to be due by December 31st of 22. Now, employers can make the deferral payments through the Electronic Federal Tax Payment System, also known as EFTPS. They can make it by a credit card or debit card money order or with a check. EFTPS actually has a new option to select deferral payments and the employer selects deferral payment and then changes the date to the applicable tax period for each payment. Now late payment penalties up to 15% will apply to all employer social security taxes deferred under the CARES Act if any portion of the repayment is not made by the applicable dates. Yeah so I, um, I want to throw something in here. I'm looking at our slide and it says Half of that was was due in at the end of 2021. But if you deferred, the remaining portion is due by December 31st, 2022. Right. Um, and, and so if you're if you're new in the payroll role at your company, it's really important to go back and look to see if that deferral <coughs> option was picked because you may not have been there. You may not know. Right. Um, because. Uh, again, those penalties are just going to stack up. They're going to say 15% of the entire amount is going to be considered to be a late payment. Right. That could be substantial. Uh, okay. Let's um, employee retention tax credit. This is something a little bit new that we haven't talked a whole lot about before, um, and it's now old, yeah. uh, but I still want to kind of cover it. So the credit was originally available on wages uh, paid by eligible employers through December 31st of 21, a year ago. Um, the law, there, there was a, a law that came back in and said retroactively terminated that um, effective September 30th. So don't anybody panic, you've got it right. Um, unless the employer was a recovery startup business. So accordingly, ERC is no longer applicable, um, you know, after basically after 9.30 of 21. Now, that doesn't mean it's not still on our radar because we still have organizations uh, trying to determine if they qualify for that. And you can still go back and file amended returns to claim this credit if you're eligible. Um, and, and it goes through basically the th three year statute of limitations timeline to amend those returns. 
Um, there's basically two different methods for eligibility. The first one is, is that the organization had a significant decline in gross receipts for a quarter. Um, it's, it's blocked out in quarters compared to that same quarter in 2019. That's considered the base measurement year. Uh, that, that method is pretty much simple math. The other um, eligibility piece would be uh, if the operation of employer's business uh, was fully or partially suspended due to a government order that limited commerce, travel, or group meetings uh, related to COVID-19. Um, you know, so if you haven't looked at this and you had declining revenues, or if you think you fall into these buckets, I think it's a good thing to look at. Um, and just a reminder, if you're claiming this credit, the IRS requires that you go back and reduce your payroll tax expense on your uh, income tax return for the year in which the credit, for the year for which the credit was claimed and not the year that you actually filed it or received the funds. And so for many organizations, this means actually going back and amending the 2020 and or the 2021 income tax returns. Um, that's something that a lot of people may not know about. So now I want to give a big caution, caution, caution. So I don't know about you, but I am, these specialty firms are popping up everywhere. Um, they're, they're, they even have kind of a name, ERC or Employer Retention Credit Mills. Um, you may hear ads on the TV or radio online, and they've got some very aggressive marketing strategies. Um, email, they're coming through email left and right. And, you know, saying, hey, we can get you $28,000 per employee and everybody qualifies. They're really exploiting that second option, which is the suspension of operations test. They claim that the supply chain issues and market conditions qualify virtually everybody out there. They claim that certain businesses and industries are automatically eligible. Uh, some claim that they have special training from the IRS. Some claim that they have special knowledge or they have proprietary information. Um, they're using boilerplate tax memos uh, across uh, multiple clients. You know, I'm just giving you a huge caution here. Um, and here's why. They're charging exorbitant fees. So it's a, um, it's a commission based, if you will, or a success fee. Um, sometimes it's 10 to 30% contingency fee. That's really pretty lucrative. Um, they're util utilizing or placing salespersons all across the country. And, and a lot of the things that I read, you know, they're referencing to this as pyramid schemes. They're paying for client referrals. So if you're not scared yet, you should be. Um, you know, they're banking on the fact that the IRS staffing, they're way understaffed um, and they think that, you know, they're not going to be able to audit these things anyway. So let's go get the money um, and keep our commission. Uh, you know, if this sounds too good to be true and all those ads sound too good to be true, you know, let's go by the old adage that it probably is. Um, you know, the IRS is really behind, but as of March 22, they have flagged over 11,000 amended 941s with more than $2 trillion in credits as suspicious. You know, now they're starting to audit these claims. CPA firms are starting to see clients receive uh, what's called an information document request, and they're honing in on these credits. Um, you know, so I guess my word of, of warning is it is it is a good program if you qualify um, and, and all of that. So make sure you talk to a trusted advisor. Um, you know, we've just seen some really strange stuff going on there. 
All right, let's go ahead and switch gears and we're gonna move into next year. So prior to the first payroll of the year, you should validate and test your tax updates to payroll software. You're gonna need to make sure that the new wage base limits are in place for your unemployment, make sure that any changes to supplemental pay rates are included. Uh, we have quite a few states that are increasing the minimum wage this year. So keep a close eye on those as well. Make sure that you and human resources are on the same page about benefits. Be sure that you're aware of any changes to the benefit packages, especially for the HCEs, the highly compensated employees, those sometimes slip by payroll. So for many of you, the beginning of the new year is uh, maybe also be the time that you're going to be implementing those enrollment changes for health insurance and other benefits. Make sure that you have uh, updated deduction amounts entered in the system for each employee and that any new benefits being offered in the coming year are being set up properly. You also want to make sure that you your accumulators reset for the first payroll of the new year. So this is going to include any time off buckets that reset at the beginning of the year, as well as the annual deduction amounts for your 401k, HSA accounts. Uh, gotcha that we're finding in some of our payroll audits are the excess deferrals of flex spending accounts and dependent, uh, dependent care accounts, where the benefit plan year is not a calendar year. So keep in mind that the FSA, HSA, dependent care annual limits are based on the W-2 reporting year, which is the calendar year. So if your benefit plan year runs for a different period, you're going to need to make sure that employees are not exceeding those calendar year limits. All right, we're going to fly pretty quickly through a bunch of the updated limits. Um, you can um, download these slides if you need to have them as a reference. But so the first one is uh, in the Social Security area, and basically the wage limit is increasing again like it normally does. Um, IRS announced 2023 retirement plan limitations last month. Uh, again, actually, there's changes across the board here. So these are the numbers that you want to look at to get back into your system. Um, on mileage, the IRS usually doesn't release the updated mileage rate until the last half of December. So we've got, you know, uh, question marks here. Uh, well, we should have question marks here. Uh, those really haven't been released yet. Great. Um, this slide here shows the changes in the standard deductions for the various filing statuses. Um, you know, why do we put this in here? Because this is how the, um, how the uh, tax tables come out. And here's just a few more categories, and the only change here is a slight increase for the HSA uh, contribution. Well, actually, the medical medical flex spending has changed as, as well as the high deductible plan limits. So one of the, as we get near the end here, we want to also talk about, make sure that you're looking at state unemployment wage bases. Again, you know, those don't, uh, many of us are in Kansas, but um, many wage bases have changed for the states that are listed here. What's on the right side, those haven't been announced yet. Um, so make sure that if you have employees um, in various states that you're looking at this, some of these are actually going down. Mm -hmm. um, most of them go up. And while the federal minimum hourly wage remains at 725 since 2009, a number of states continue to raise their minimum uh, wage rates above the federal rate. Some states are increasing the minimum wage every year until it reaches $15 an hour or more. 
Some states like California and Maryland have different rates for small and other employers. And then don't forget some rates vary by county within a state. And then even some cities also have their own minimum wage rates, which may differ from the state. So again, states are finalizing these. Make sure that you watch carefully um, and you just keep up with that in your state.